So as Ben mentioned, this is it. All right, our fall season is upon us. Some of you have kids or grandkids who have already started school this last week. Some Tuesday is the day, and it's weird because, like, outside, it knows. Like, it's like, okay, we're going to go right into fall season, you know, and so it's beautiful fall-type weather out there, which is just incredible. Um, have you ever, have you ever been around someone where, um, I don't know, they just ha- kind of have a weak stomach? And I don't mean like they get the flu easy, But I mean like, and I would do it. I wish I could do it, but I'm afraid it would make some of you sick and you would leave. But like, where if you do the throw up face, you know, like the face, you know, where like if they see someone do that motion, like it makes them sick. Like literally they lose their stuff. They can't, or if they hear it, you know, some of you can actually, please don't do it. But like, you know how to do it. Like, you know how to do the the sound is actually Thanksgiving. I don't think last year, I think it was the year before last I was playing around, and I made the sound, and like, so our cousin from Oklahoma, like, she literally got up, and she left to go to the restroom, because it made her sick, because I did the sound, and I felt horrible about it, so don't make the sound, don't do that to anyone in church. For some of you, you don't have a weak stomach because of like, what someone does, like, how they look, or this, it smells for you. So when someone opens up the fridge, and they're like, ooh, this is gross, smell this, you know, you're like, I can't smell it. Like, if I smell it, it'd be over. Why would you ever ask me to smell something this gross? Don't do that, you know? And, and so we know, like, there's things, like, that you see or that you hear or that you smell that makes us sick. But what if the question was, what is it that makes Jesus gag? What is it that makes Jesus sick? What is it? This is going to be such a fun morning. Uh, Guys, we're in this sermon series called Drift. We're actually finishing the sermon series today where we've been talking about what it is for followers of Jesus or the church to start to drift away from the Lord and the plans that he has for us. Jesus, through John, sent seven letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today. Today, we're going to be finishing up. We've been in Revelation 2 and 3. We'll be in Revelation 3 today, chapters uh, 3, verses 14 through 22. Take your Bibles and let's open up there now. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. I think of all the letters that we've been through, this is the one. This is the one that probably, if you've been in church for a season, this is the one you've heard lots of sermons on, probably more than one, right? You've heard sermons on this. And so I just, I just want you to know my goal going into this morning. My goal is that I know some of you are brand new to church, you're brand new to the Bible. I, I want to preach this in a way that you can understand it, even if you're brand new with us today. And at the same time, my hope is that those of you who have been a Christian for a long time and you've heard multiple sermons on this exact text, my hope is that it stretches your faith today, that you learn something new, that you're renewed this morning, that your mind all of a sudden is stretched, that there's a depth to your faith and a depth to your knowledge after this morning that you didn't have before you came in. So let's, let's do this. Let's just stop and pray before we get going. Lord, Um, We do thank you, and we do praise you for today. Lord, I do pray for those who are new to the Bible and new to church. I pray that this morning is an encouragement to them, even though it may be different, even though some of it maybe they don't understand yet. Uh, Lord, I pray that they're able to understand your Bible, that it is crystal clear, and how we should uh, apply it to our lives is clear. Lord, I pray for those who are followers of Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray for us to, to be able to look at the text and, um, 
and heed your warnings. Lord, to turn from those areas in our life where maybe we've started to, to let it slip. We've started to let ourselves drift away from the plans that you have for us. So, Lord, where there needs to be conviction, where there needs to be an alignment with you, I pray that we're quick to make those corrections. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this last church is the church of Laodicea. If you can imagine, there's been this courier, right? John on the island of Patmos gave this stack of letters to these seven churches. And so this letter deliverer is like, okay, Ephesus, here you go, and here you go. And he goes through all of the churches and finally gets to Laodicea. Laodicea as a city is located at a major crossroads, these two major highways. And so as a city... This city has the best that Rome has to offer. When you think of the Roman Empire and all its greatness, that is the city. The banking industry was strong, partly because there was an exchange center there, and no matter which major city you were going to, you could exchange your money to get the, the currency of where you were getting ready to go. That was there. The fashion industry was strong here because there was this black wool that was so famous, like the fashion industry was cutting edge. The medical industry was strong because there was this eye ointment that they created in Laodicea, this, this salve for the eyes that they would, they would put on. And so this city had everything that you would think that a city should have in the Roman Empire. It was wealthy. The, the prosperity was strong. In fact, if this helps, in 60 A.D., the city was rocked by an earthquake, like just rocked. So Rome comes in and says, we'll give you some money. We'll help you rebuild this city. And here's what they said. No thanks. No thanks. We don't want your money. We don't need your money. We got all the money we need to rebuild everything. Like we've got it taken care of. Thank you very much. But we've got our own money. We'll just rebuild our own. Isn't that incredible? Like, we, we don't need emergency funds from you. We're taken care of, which brings us to our big idea. Our big idea is that a self-sufficient church makes Jesus sick. A self-sufficient church makes the gag reflexes of Jesus kick in. A self-sufficient church literally makes him vomit. Now, I just have to tell you, that's not how I was raised. Like, maybe you're kind of with me. Like, my dad... My dad was kind of a tough man and still, still is, right? And my dad's the guy who would say the helping hand you're looking for is at the end of your arm. My, my dad's the one that'd say, son, you better get up. You better set your goal. You better set a path for how you're going to reach your goal. And you better go get it because no one's going to do it for you. you. You better get up and get to work, son. You better get it done. Like, that's what my dad would say to me. And here what we see is this whole different approach where Jesus looks at the church, the self-sufficient, that says, no, we've got it. We've got it taken care of. And it literally makes him sick. So for the rest of this morning, what I want us to do is look at three specific ways and three specific reasons, really, three reasons that the self-sufficient church makes Jesus sick. First of all, it makes Jesus sick because we become ineffective with the gospel. Let's look at Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. Jesus, through John, says this, and to the angel of the church of, in Laodicea write, the words of the amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And so the first reason the self-sufficient church makes Jesus sick 
is because self-sufficiency makes us ineffective with the gospel, which is the message of hope, the message of grace, the message of peace. Now, in every letter, all seven, they start the same way. There's a description that Jesus gives that is meant specifically for that church. And in this case, he says that he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the faithful and true witness. That's important because this church no longer was the faithful and true witness. This church has drifted from the calling that they were supposed to have. In verse 15, look how he goes deeper. He says that he is all-knowing. He says, I know your works. I know your works. I know what you've been doing, and you are neither cold nor hot. Now, in previous messages, I've talked about how context is important. Right, the, the message to that specific city is important. If, if I look at you and I say, hey, guys, there's a hurricane this morning. It was upgraded to a Category 5. Okay, we're in Michigan, so we go, oh, that's, that's awful. Don't move to Florida. You know, I mean, that's kind, of, that's kind of the attitude we would have. And those in Florida, they would say, okay, I mean, we have storms. We know how to deal with storms. Guys, this is a Category 5. This is no joke. Like this, this is, it means something different there to the people who live there. Now, if I say the word snow in Florida, they're going to laugh and they're going to say, don't move to Michigan, right? And we go, I know, right? That's how we go. And um, no, but what we do is we say, we're not scared of a little snow, right? Watch Michiganders. There can be a foot of snow outside, and what do people in Michigan do? We shovel our sidewalks, and people go running. That's what they do, right? Nobody's snow, unless it's snowmageddon, and then the rules change, doesn't it? If the, if the weather guy says there's a storm coming, it's going to be the worst storm that you've ever seen in your lifetime. There's two to three feet of snow tonight with three inches of ice on top of that. You see, when they say that word ice, what do we say? We say, we're out. That's it. Nope, we're going to Meyer. we're buying every bit of water they have, we're clearing the shelves, and I am staying home for the next week till the ice melts. That's what we're going to do, right? Everything changes. If I go to Florida and I say the auto industry, they're like, oh, yeah, the auto, in-. they don't get it, do they? Not like people in Detroit get it. Here's why that's important, because it talks about hot and cold and lukewarm. That means something specific to Laodicea. Look at this map. This is incredible. So this map, wait, go back. We got to do that again. We got to do that again, because it's going to be so good. All right, here we go. Let me show you this map. (laughs) All right, so here's the map. So down in the bottom, it kind of shows the region pulled back. The Mediterranean Sea is down here. We got the zoomed-in version up at the top. And up at the top right, you see where it says Laodicea. Look just north of that. Just north of Laodicea, you see the Heropolis. Not only in the first century, but still today, people will come from miles to go to the hot waters that are there. They're said to be healing and therapeutic. In fact, I watched a a travel agency ad just this week on it, and it was so funny because the guy is standing there as the water is bubbling up from the earth, and it's developing this pool. It almost I mean, it's beautiful. It almost looks like a, a giant bath is what it looks like, and he's standing there as the water's bubbling all around his feet, and the mineral waters, again, are supposed to be therapeutic in nature, and he's saying, listen, this place is great. It's a little off the beaten path. You can take an airplane ride. It just takes one hour to get here. Or a bus ride would be some hours, but it's a very comfortable bus, and you should come. And I'm thinking, very comfortable bus, really. Anyway, the Heropolis was said to have therapeutic, hot, 
therapeutic waters. Now if you look just to the east and south of Laodicea, you see Colossae. Colossae was the direct opposite. The waters were crystal clear, ice cold, refreshing. People would come from miles to go there just because the water was so therapeutic because of its, its cold, crisp cleanness. When you go to Laodicea, the banking industry strong, the fashion industry strong, the medical professionals strong, the waters were disgusting. That was the downfall of this particular city. The waters were so gross there. So people would start to take a drink, but they were just kind of like it wasn't hot or cold. And so people would literally do the gag reflex thing whenever they'd start to drink the water. So city officials decided what we're going to do, we're smart and we've got all the money, and so we're just going to pipe the water in. We can have hot water come in, we can have cold water come in, but for some reason, by the time it would get to the city, it was this this lukewarm, stagnant-type water, and it literally was making people sick. They would spit it out of their mouths. Now, so if you need an illustration, it wasn't but like a month ago that it was hot here in Michigan, right? You tracking? Like it hot. Remember the hot day where it felt like a, a hot, wet blanket on top of you when you go outside? So picture that day. Let's imagine on that day, you're like, I'm going to go outside and mow the lawn. Not on your tractor, because that doesn't count. Like, you're, you're pushing it, like in the old days. You know, you're pushing it. It's not self-propelled. Like, you got to put, like, your power has to push, and it doesn't have the fat tires that make it easy to push. you got the little, little wee tires, you know? And so you're, you're pushing the lawn. You tracking with me? Do your heads like this. All right. So you're, you're mowing the lawn, and you're mowing. But you love Jesus so much that after you mow your lawn, in the heat of the day, you look over at your neighbor's house. And you see how long their grass is getting, and you're like, I want to be a blessing to them. So you edge it, you make it look so good, and you mow their lawn, and then you put the mower up. Now you know the feeling I'm talking about. You're thirsty, aren't you? Your mouth feels like you've been chewing on cotton balls. Like you're just like, man, I'm thirsty. And you reach over, and you grab a LaCroix. Now I know some of you are already grossed out. Like, that's it for you. I've tried so hard to convince Amy that they're good. And I'm like, try the root beer flavor. Nope, she hates that. And I'm like, try this flavor. And she's like, I don't like them. I'm not trying it anymore. I hate them all. So imagine the LaCroix, for those of you who do like them, imagine it's been sitting in the garage for three days. And you take it, and it's coconut flavor. And you pop it open. Yeah, it would taste kind of like suntan lotion at that point, wouldn't it? Like you're drinking. Do you know how gross that would be? Like, even if you like LaCroix, that's gross. That's what, you would want to, what? You'd want to spit it out, wouldn't you? And that's what we see is we see this church is so ineffective with the gospel. When we miss the mark of being effective with the gospel, Jesus wants to spit us out. He's saying, this is not how I created you. You're not hot. You're not cold. See, sometimes when people preach this sermon, they preach it in a way that says, Jesus wants you to be on fire for the Lord or hate him like one or the other. That's not what this is really talking about. This is saying that regionally what's going on is this city struggled with this lukewarm water. Hot is good, right? When we are on fire for the gospel, isn't it true it changes our neighborhoods? It changes our families. It changes our city. The spiritual temperature seems to rise around us, doesn't it? People are aware because of the healing properties of the gospel that's going out from us. Same thing with the cold, right? Cold is good. Cold is refreshing. There should be something about this place. If someone comes in for the first time, they say, you know what? There's a place 
that I can get just a cold drink, a refreshing drink, because I feel so dry. I feel so parched. I feel so exhausted. I just need a drink. And they come in this place, and just simply because they're around you and they're around me, they feel like they're getting that cold drink. Isn't that incredible? Like, that's what we're called to. That's the kind of church we're supposed to be. Because when you become self-reliant, what you've done is you've said, Jesus, I don't need you. Thank you very much. That's where, that's where consumer-driven Christianity comes in. Like, you understand consumer-driven Christianity, right? It's a Christianity that says, well, it's really just about what we like and what makes us happy. It has nothing to do with the gospel, like, I like the music or I don't like the music. I like the preaching. I don't like the preaching. I like my group. I don't like my group. If there's anything going on that I don't like, I might hit the road jack and never come back. No more, no more, no more, no more, right? And so that's, that's how I'm going to do things. That's just consumer-driven Christianity. And if that's your version of Christianity, that means your life is prayerless. Your worship is spiritless. Your group life, when you do uh, group life with people, man, it's just a facade. You're just trying to check a box. You're not getting in people's lives. You're not letting them pray for you. You're not letting them encourage you. You're not letting them challenge you. We're called to something deeper. So a self-sufficient church makes Jesus sick because we're ineffective with the gospel. Number two, it also blinds us to our true condition. Let's look down at verse 17. Revelation 3, starting verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, And I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So what we see here is self-sufficiency doesn't just make us ineffective with the gospel. It blinds us when it comes to the condition of our hearts. Here's the Lord's ways. When we don't live according to what the Lord has called us to, we start to drift away. The problem with being self-sufficient is it blinds you. You don't even realize you've drifted. You don't realize it because you're saying, well, I've got everything I need. Our our buildings are good. Our budgets are good. Our attendance good. I've got everything I need. I'm good. You're blind to how far you've drifted. Maybe even like when you send emails, like you put a little verse down there at the bottom or something. So you, you feel like you're being spiritual. You feel like you're being holy. And that's this church. Look at verse 17. They said, I'm rich. I prospered. I need nothing. But look at what Jesus said. Jesus said, you need a gut check because you're so far off track. He said, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Do you see what he just did right there? He took everything that was great about this city, and he said, no, that's a liability for you. The banking industry. He said, you, you think you're wealthy? What did he say? He said, you're, you're poor. The, the medical industry. Oh, you think you've got this South Friday? No, you're, you're blind. Your fashion industry. You think you're so good because of this black wool? No, you're naked. Everything. You know what that would be like? Because just imagine, the courier brings them this letter. They read through this letter. When they get to this point, church, I'm telling you this would have stopped them in their tracks. It would be like looking at a church in Detroit and saying, you're lazy. I don't, I don't know if there would be stronger fighting words than telling people in Detroit you're lazy. Just so you know, all across America, really globally, this place right here, you, you are known as being a people who are hardworking. Right, that blue collar, hardworking, you gotta hustle, you're gonna get the job done. It doesn't matter what's going on with the world, what's going on with the economy. People around here, they're gonna figure out a way to go to work and get it done. 
right? Like, that is your reputation. That is the reputation of this place. And so someone looked at those in Detroit and this area and said, you're late. That'd be fighting words. But look what Jesus just said to this church. Don't miss verse 18. Verse 18 is where it takes a sudden turn. It's so cool. Jesus shows us how much he loves this church, and he wants them to turn from their self-sufficiency and turn to him. So what's he say? He says, you're poor, but I want you to come to me and buy gold that's been refined by fire. Do you see that? You're naked, but I want you to come to me and buy these white garments. I want you to clothe yourself in purity and holiness. You're blind, but come to me. I have this out for your eyes that whenever you rub on your eyes, you will be able to see. That should leap off of the pages at you. It should do something to your insights because you know what Jesus just said? He said that place where you're weak, that place where you're sinful, I have an eternal answer for you. And that's true for you today. Do you know that? Like wherever it is that you're inside and you're like, man, this spot in my life is a mess. Jesus has an eternal, awesome, powerful answer for you. Now, this whole thing got me thinking. You know, I drive around this area and you drive around this area and you've seen the cars on the side of the road, right, that are for sale. Like, and so they'll like, right, is it shoe polish that they use on the windows or whatever? It doesn't even matter. That's not important. Anyway, they might put a price on the windshield. They might just stick a little paper inside with the details. And so here's what you do. Like, you're driving by, and if it's like, you know, 20000 you're just going to keep driving. But the price is right, you might pull over and take a look at it. So you walk around it, and you're like, all right, paint job's looking pretty good. Your windshield wipers, they look nice. You kick the tires. I don't even know why people do that. Like, I, it makes no sense. My dad used to do that, and I'm thinking, it just makes your foot dirty. Like, that's all that that did. I don't know what, what does kicking the tire. It, so if you know why people kick the tires, tell me on the way out. Because I, I honestly, I'm being serious. Like, I, I don't know why you would ever kick a tire. But kicking the tires, you know, you walk around. You know, and I know, we're in Michigan. You can't just buy that car. That'd be dumb, right? You don't buy the car. You take it to your mechanic that you trust. And they're going to put it up in the air, and they're going to look underneath it right? And they're going to look under the hood. And you wouldn't be surprised, and I wouldn't be surprised if the mechanic comes back to you and says, um, don't buy that car, because it's all rusted out underneath. Like, I'm telling you, within the year, everything's going to fall out. Like, it's a mess. Like, it just, I know the paint job looks good, and I know it starts up first try, but in six months, your exhaust system's going to be laying on 32 miles. I told that story earlier, and someone grabbed me after the service, and they said, hey, just so you know, the church van, yeah, it lost its exhaust system right in our parking lot, and Ben had to pick it up and go throw it in the dumpster. So um, yeah, anyway, it happens, right? It looks good. It seems like it runs fine, but you got to be so careful. Spiritually, that's us. We can look so good on the outside. We can look like we have our stuff together, but spiritually inside, we can be an absolute mess and so far from where the Lord has called us to be. And so here's a quick test so you can like check where am I, am I where I'm supposed to be or have I started to drift? Is there anything in you, anything at all that could be content saying, I went to church on Sunday morning? You know, so I sang some songs, I listened to the sermon, I prayed a little bit, I gave some. Like, no, I'm good till next Sunday. Is there anything in you that could be good with that? 
or is there anything in you that you're like, you know, Sunday, give it, leave it, whatever. But like my group time, you know, if I go to my group time and we break bread together and we pray together and we open the Bible together, man, if I have that, I'm good. You know, we may not see each other for two more weeks, but I, I'm, I'm good. Can I tell you, if that's you, you've become self-sufficient. You've started to slide in this place where you're looking and saying, Lord, I, I really don't need you. I've, I've got this on my own. I'll take care of it. You're not where you're supposed to be. There should be something in you that wakes up and says, I want to open the word of God and I want to see what the Lord has for me today. I want to know him more. I I want to get involved with a group of people and I want to grow not just not just with what I know but how obedient I'm being. And so that means I've got to be pretty real with this group of people. Sunday mornings, I can't wait for Sunday morning church. I lived for three years in another country where I didn't get the chance on a weekly basis to worship in English. I don't know if you can even imagine that, but once a year we would come together with others and we would get the chance to worship in English. And let me tell you, there is something about that that is so precious. I'll never look at Sunday ever again with apathy, just as like I'm checking the box, I'm going through the motions. If you've ever been there, then you get it. I have a feeling that the 400,000 Christians that are left in Turkey today, where these seven churches were located, there's only 400,000 Christians left. They don't think about meeting with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just a, hey, I need to check the box. And if that's you, if Jesus has become this add-on, then you've started to drift from where you're called to be, which brings us to our third and final point. Self-sufficiency separates us from the fellowship of Christ This is awesome. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. I'll come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquer and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So self-sufficiency separates us from fellowship, which is the reason the Lord is so adamant with this church in Laodicea. He wants fellowship with them. Look at verse 19. He says it's like a parent to a child. Like if you've got kids, if, if you've got grandkids, if you've ever worked with kids, then you understand. You can't just let kids do whatever they want to do. Like you can't. You give them guidelines. You give them instruction. You give them discipline. You do it because you care. You do it because it's for their their better. Jesus says, this is the same way. I'm doing this for their better. In verse number 20, we see this is important. Jesus is speaking to Christians here. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. This is not evangelism. This is not Jesus knocking on the door of the whole entire city of Laodicea. It's specifically to this church. It's specifically to Christians. He says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you'll open the door, I will come in. I'll eat with you and you with me. Do you know how powerful that is? Like this has huge implications in the first century. In the first century, if there's relational tension between you and someone else, and you started to drift away, and you were looking for an opportunity to restore that relationship, you would do that through sitting down at a table together, right? And when you do sit down at the table together, even if like there's not brokenness, it's just like a normal meal, there's still rules. There's a pecking order to how you do things, like 
the youngest in the home, the most what they would call the insignificant one, would go and wash the hands of everyone at the table. Like there are rules. And we act like that's weird for the first century, but we have rules, don't we? If the president of the United States invited you to go eat with him, there are rules, right? Or if the Queen of England invited you, there are rules. You're not going to drive through Popeye's to get that spicy chicken sandwich, right? That's not what you're going to do. There are rules to how you're going to do it. Unless maybe it's George Bush. President Bush maybe would have said, like, no, I want me one of them spicy chicken sandwiches. You know, and he'd be good with it. But most everybody else, there's a pecking order, right? There's a, there's a system to how you do it. But did you see what Jesus just did? He broke that system. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go in. I'm going to eat with you. And, and you with me, there's this intimate unity and fellowship that's going to take place. This is just a glimpse of the final banquet with Jesus, the unity that we get to have for eternity with the Lord. And he continues that message in verse 21. He talks about the one who conquers or the one who's faithful to Christ. The result is being a co-ruler, a joint king with Christ, ruling and reigning with God forever, this eternal fellowship with Christ. Now we all know how painful it can be when relationships are broken. I just, you know, I want you to think about your earliest memory where there was a relationship break. You know, probably middle school, right? Maybe elementary school for you. I was kind of late in the game, so mine would have been like middle school. But first time you get that boyfriend or girlfriend and it doesn't work, like it gets awkward, doesn't it? So you try to avoid the person. Isn't that what happens? You try to avoid them, which in Inola, you couldn't because we had one hallway. Like it was just one hall. So there was no like, I can work around them to get to class. And so what I would do is like, I would walk over by the lockers and I'd like, like look at the scenic lockers as I would walk. You know, that way when she goes that way, I don't have to make eye contact. She's going that way, I'm going that, but then third hour, like you're stuck in class together. You can't escape them. And then you're in the same group. And so you know how like it'd work. Like if, if we were the two, then there's a third person here. We would just both turn and talk to that third, that poor person. They get, here's the reason I mentioned that. I mentioned that because I want you to notice where Jesus is right now. In the text, in the text, Jesus is on the outside knocking. Do you know how important that is? Sometimes I think what we do is when, when, we, start to, when we start to move away from what the Lord has called us to, What we do is we act like Jesus kicks us out. But do you see the reality in Scripture? Isn't it true that oftentimes we're the ones who we get uncomfortable, we we feel a little bit awkward, so we push Jesus out? That's what happens with the self-sufficient church. They've started to push Jesus out. Now, Jesus, he could send 10,000 angels, couldn't he? He could rip that door right off the hinges, like SWAT style, like he'd be right in there if he wanted to. But what's he do? He says, I stand at the door. I'm just going to knock. I'm just going to patiently knock. I know you pushed me out because you think you can do it on your own. I'm just going to keep knocking. Why don't you let me come in? If you let me come in, I can sit down with you. I can eat with you, you with me. We can have this unity. We can have this this relationship together, and it's going to be awesome. I think the scary thing about all this is how fast it can happen. In other sermons, I think what we see is a lot of times it kind of takes time to drift from the Lord, doesn't it? it? It just takes time to fall into some of the traps that we can fall into. And yet, this is, this is, this is so fast. It reminds me, you know, I got two boys, Ian and Gabe. Um, Gabe is my youngest. He's going into his 
junior year of high school this week, which is so weird to say. Like, that just boggles my brain because that means I'm old, right? That's what that means. But his junior year. So they're, they're very different, my two boys. My oldest was always the one, like, he was right with me, right beside me. He went in eye contact with me wherever we were at. And Gabe was not. Gabe was independent. Gabe at six months old was like, I don't want Velcro shoes. I want big boy shoes because I want to tie on myself. Not really. Not that fast. But he was pretty independent. Like by two, this is true, uh, we would hold his hand when we would walk and go places. And I'd have to tell him like, Gabe, you have to hold my hand. You can't be freestyling because the cars will squish you like a bug. I use those words. I wanted him to understand the gravity of the situation. They will squish you like, it may have traumatized him a little bit, but that's still, that's what I said. The cars will squish you like a bug. And Gabe hated it. He hated hold my hand. He would do that thing where he's like, hold my hand, and then he would like, you know when kids do that? Like, I, I don't like it. Like, your hand's hot and sweaty, you know? And so he would do that, and then finally I'd let go, and he would kind of get his hand down, like quick as he could, he'd get his hand down. And he'd look at me like this to see like, did he notice? You know, kind of like one of those. And then he'd walk into a pole, which he did numerous times, he, he really did. Anyway, here's why I bring that up. Because we were, we were at the mall one day. Anytime it would rain, we would go to the mall because they had a big toy where the kids could play. And so we're there with all the other parents. It's the same um, big toy that Ian broke his arm on, and that should have been a clue. Anyway, we were at the big toy, and we were hanging out. We're watching Gabe play. And we're watching all the kids play and watching Ian play, and everybody's all over the place having a great time. Everybody's laughing and smiling and it was fast, church. It was, I mean, it was like that. So weird. And today, it, kind of, it's, it really is. It's scary thinking about um, how bad this whole situation could have been. But just in a blink, all of a sudden, there's people walking out of Toys R Us with my child. And they say, hey, do you speak English? Because I, I think this kid might belong to you. You look like you speak English. So does this kid belong to you? Because Gabe had decided, Mr. Independent, I'm going to go check out Toys and Toys R Us and not tell anybody. I'm just going to go on a walkabout, you know, and off he goes. And I think that's what we do with the Lord. I think that sometimes what we do with the Lord is we say, Lord, thank you very much, but I don't really need to bring you my prayer today. Aren't you busy with a hurricane or something? Like, I just, I'm good. I got this. Financially, Lord, no, I'm, I'm good. I got it. I've worked hard, Lord, and so I'm taken care of now. I, I'm, not, I'm not in a position where I really need you at this moment. Health-wise, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good right now, Lord, thanks. I don't, I don't need you. I'm self-sufficient. With our worship team, Lord, we, we've worked. We've rehearsed. With our preaching, Lord, we've studied. I think just like that, we can fall into the trap of being self-sufficient, not even intending to. But we so, so quickly can come to this place of saying, Lord, we don't need you. If you're in a place today and you're going, no, I am in a place where I call on the Lord on a very regular basis. I know how much I trust him. I know how much I need him. Can I just encourage you, keep going. Keep saying that out loud because everyone around you, they need to hear it. Whether they realize it or not, they need to hear that we need the Lord. We can't do this without him. So don't ever get tired of echoing that out. And for the rest of us, if you've come to that place of saying, yeah, I didn't mean to drift, but I kind of did. 
I think of everything all the churches struggle with for Woodside Romeo, this is the one I'm most afraid of. So let's never get tired of waking up saying, Lord, I need you today. We can't take one step without you. When you let us take six steps, we're going to stop and we're going to praise the Lord. You are so good. Your mercies endure forever. And I'm not going to stop relying on, trusting in, clinging to you. Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the way that it continues to sharpen us still today. Lord, I am... I pray for those who maybe they have come to a place of becoming a little bit too self-sufficient. I pray that the Holy Spirit is able to speak in this place and just remind each and every one of us that our reliance should be on you. And Lord, in that place, it drives us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, we do thank you for the way that you have so richly blessed us. And I pray that we're able to take the work that you have done, the work that you're doing, and we continue to be faithful witnesses, making disciples, impacting the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand as we close our morning in worship together.